Well, good morning, Stafford Baptist Church and visitors. It is good to gather with you to worship Jesus our King. My name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving Stafford Baptist Church as one of its elders. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you can find Matthew chapter 13 on page 1, oh, sorry, 818, 818. We're going to be jumping back into our sermon series in Matthew today, though only for one week. Our sermon text this morning is the middle third of Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43, 24 through 43. Matthew 13 includes eight of Jesus' parables on the kingdom of heaven, and today we'll be reading three of them, numbers two through four. These parables describe what the kingdom that Jesus brings is like, unlike any of the kingdoms of the world. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43, big things have small beginnings. Before we read, though, would you please pray with me once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word. Let's let's pray. Our Father, you teach us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your reign in heaven is perfect with all the hosts of heaven exclaiming and exalting your name forever and ever. So we pray, Father, that we would submit to you as king, as the angels in heaven. That you would rule in our hearts this morning as we submit to your word. Build your kingdom in us by the proclamation of your word. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if you had invested $1,000 in Amazon's initial public offering opening in, in 1997, do you know how much that would be worth today? It would be worth $2.34 million. That's like trading in a couch and getting five or six houses in return. Like so many tech giants, Amazon started in a garage. Jeff Bezos and his wife packed the books they sold themselves. Well now, as the world's largest e-commerce website, Amazon has 110 warehouses in the United States. Of course, hindsight is 2020. Back in 1997, even the keenest optimists would not have foreseen what Amazon would be become today. You know, if we could all go back 20 years knowing then what we know now. Hmm. Well, what if I told you about a another investment opportunity with even better returns? That years from now will have grown far more than even Amazon, when Amazon is totally forgotten. Right now, it might seem like a small startup in a garage, but when all is said and done, it will not control trillions of dollars, but literally all of heaven and earth. Well, something like Amazon, Jesus teaches us that the kingdom will have a modest beginning but will result in an unstoppable, eternal kingdom. Like those investors in 1997, we shouldn't judge the kingdom by its present 
unassuming size and, and power. No, this kingdom will have eternal importance for every person that has or ever will live. Let's read how Jesus teaches of this kingdom. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Big things start small. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that plat. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The word of the Lord. Well, what is this passage all about in one sentence? What does Jesus want us to do with these parables about the kingdom? Our big idea this morning is this. Live in expectation of the kingdom's unstoppable expansion. Live in expectation of the kingdom's unstoppable expansion. Jesus here tells us three more parables, all relatable to his audience, to teach them about this kingdom of heaven. You might remember from a few weeks ago in the first parable, right, about the four soils, it was, it was about why some reject and some receive the message of the kingdom. Well, now in these parables to the same crowd, he is teaching about the nature of the kingdom, that it starts small, that it's mixed with the kingdom of this world, but in the end it will be of eternal importance for every person that has or ever will live. Live in expectation of the kingdom's unstoppable expansion. 
We're going to have three points to walk through the parables this morning. Number one, of weeds and wheat in verses 24 through 30. Second, small beginnings in verses 31 through 35. And finally, have eternal consequences in 36 through 43. Of weeds and wheat, small beginnings, and have eternal consequences. Like in our first study in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us an interpretation of one of these parables. So we'll only spend a brief time on the facts of the first parable and let Jesus give, it, give us the meaning later in private. So let's start in verse 24, our first point of weeds and wheat. Of weeds and wheat. Jesus here tells the crowds in Capernaum another parable. It seems he is going back and forth between speaking to the crowds and giving his disciples private instruction. In verse 24, you see, he put a parable to them, the, the crowds. Here, Jesus comparing the kingdom to a field with wheat and weeds. Remember, all these parables in the chapter are, are meant to teach us about the kingdom of heaven. And, and parables, again, are simple stories where the meaning is not on the, the surface. They're somewhat cryptic. They're not full-on allegory where every detail represents something, but generally they teach main, one main point. You'll recall from our first study that Jesus teaches in parables too with the same words expose understanding in some and uncertainty in others. His teaching is a dividing line with parables meant to test and expose his listeners' spiritual perception. Well, this parable, the second parable of the chapter of weeds and wheat, is, is less about the kinds of soil the seeds are sown into and, and more what, what we're to do with the weeds and wheat in the field. So let's start in verse 24. A man sows good seed. In verse 25, it's identified as, as wheat. But in verse 25, uh, an enemy comes and sows some weeds in the same field. It happens under the cover of night when everybody's asleep and, and there's no evidence of it the next morning to know something is wrong. But in verse 26, when the seeds grow up, the weeds reveal themselves. He, Jesus is likely referring to a specific weed, Darnell. Darnell looks a lot like what what uh, wheat is in its early growth. But when the, the heads of grain appear, there is, is no doubt which is which. Well, the, the first question the servants have is how, in verse 27. The, the servants point out to their master that he sowed good seed in the field. The, the only answer is that an enemy must have done this. It wasn't a, a common occurrence in Jesus' day, but it certainly happened. So their next question is, is in verse 28, what, what should we do? Should we go out and pull out the weeds from your field? Well, the master replies in verse 29, no. Unfortunately, the roots of this weed of Darnell would entangle around the roots of, of the wheat. So if you tried to pull up the bad to kill it, well, you would pull up and kill the good as well. So instead, the master's plan is to let the Darnell and wheat grow together in the same field, the poisonous wheat, weed alongside the nourishing wheat. Instead of immediate separation, the weeds and wheat would be separated at the harvest. They would have to wait to remove the weeds, which would be burned, and the wheat gathered into the barn. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Obviously, we, we already read Jesus' interpretation of it. You, you know what this means. But, but the crowds here don't get that. Notice in, in verse 36, before he explains, he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him. But it's not the only parable he puts before the crowd. Let's keep going into verse 31 in our second point, small beginnings. Number two, small beginnings. Matthew reports two more parables, each teaching something similar about the kingdom of heaven. So let's get the details of these parables out in front of us. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed and to leaven. And and mustard seeds in in Jesus' day were proverbial for smallness. Uh, A mustard seed is about one millimeter across. But as small as a mustard seed is, it it grows into quite a large bush, upwards of 10 or 12 feet. So when you compare the size of the seed to the final product, it's it's, it's a remarkable growth. What starts small ends up quite large. They might not be literally on earth the smallest seed, but the crowds would understand Jesus is not giving us a, a, a scientific treatise. The, the point is not the particular seed. It's, it's a seed that they can relate to that has a particularly remarkable growth. You might think of an acorn that grows into a, a 75-foot oak tree or a tiny sunflower seed that grows into a, a five-foot sunflower he says in, in verse 32 that the seed grows into something that provides a home for the birds of the air. What was so small that birds could eat it is now so large that it supports their nests, cradling their young. He quickly moves to his, his next parable, a, a separate parable but similar. He leaves the world of agriculture and, and goes to the world of, of the culinary, of leavening bread. Again, Jesus identifies the kingdom of heaven with something small, leaven. Yeast is is literally microscopic organisms that convert starch and sugars into gas that make dough rise. And the emphasis here is less about how big, but, but how much and how thorough. He mentions three measures of flour, and I think normally we think, is he talking about like three cups of flour here? But the kind of measure he refers to is 13 liters, meaning it's nearly 50 pounds of flour. This is enough dough to feed nearly 100 people. And just a little bit of leaven doing its invisible work causes the whole batch to rise. The the work that leaven does is, is invisible. You can't watch it happen. You can only see its result, risen dough. Just like you can't really watch a tree grow, right? You might see after weeks or, or months that the mustard seed has, has gotten taller, but sit and watch it for a few hours, well, it's like watching paint dry. It'll get there eventually, but it's not perceptible. Again, another similarity. Just like the mustard seed gives benefit to the birds, the risen dough gives benefit to the eater. It provides food for the hungry. Well, those are our parables this morning. We'll, we'll comment on their meaning in a minute. But first, verses 34 and 35. The reason for the parables. Jesus himself had quoted earlier in our chapter Isaiah 6 to tell us why he spoke in parables. Now Matthew himself quotes Psalm 78 
Everything he taught to the crowds was in parables, fulfilling Psalm 78, verse 2. Well, what's interesting, when you go read Psalm 78, 2, it doesn't sound like a prophecy. It doesn't say, in that day, this will happen, right? It is the psalmist Asaph claiming to teach the nation's history to a new generation. Well, to put it briefly, we have another pattern that Jesus fulfills. Jesus, just like those of old, is teaching and revealing what was hidden in mystery, explaining God's actions. Jesus, especially in his kingdom parables, is is bringing together various expectations of the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted a a royal king and a a son of David to reign, but also predicted a a suffering servant and a, a stricken shepherd. Jesus' hopes for the Messiah imagined an an immediate and decisive victory for God's people and and deliverance from their foreign oppressors. But even though Jesus was their Messiah, that's not exactly what was happening. So these parables that he teaches of the mustard seed and yeast teach us that the kingdom of, of God won't come in the ways that they're expecting. They are hoping for Amazon at its prime, pun intended, the full force of the titan of industry, immediately. But Jesus is teaching us here that the kingdom starts small, like a mustard seed or some leaven. Think of how inconspicuous Jesus the king was. We sing at Christmas of his birth in a little town, how silently the wondrous gift was given. He spent some 30 years with his family, quietly growing and and working. His family, I am sure, suspected something was up with him, but they were still surprised when he started teaching like this. Now here he is, God in the flesh, and he chooses a band of uneducated men to pass on his teaching to. And he keeps his inner circle small, only to 12. And he doesn't teach in the halls of palaces and and libraries, but on the shores of a lake to residents of a backwater fishing village. Talk about starting small. We take this for granted as we read the Gospels, but this seems so counterintuitive when you think about it. But in time, this small band of Jesus' followers will spread like leaven from Jerusalem to Judea and further out as Christ's followers are scattered due to persecution. It doesn't happen overnight, but little by little, the tree grows. Now, two millennia later, how has this leaven spread? Well, the world's most popular religion is Christianity. More than two billion people alive today identify as Christian in one way or another. And this religion is so far flung that it's on every continent. No region can claim to be the center of global Christianity. And in fact, in the last 100 years, it's, it's grown more diverse, shrinking in Europe, but growing in Asia and Africa. So the enduring global glo- growth of Christianity is like the mustard seed or, or leaven. During his life, it didn't seem to be what the Jews were hoping for. And it only got worse when he was arrested, when he was unjustly condemned, crucified, and died by the Roman powers. What kind of kingdom is this? 
But Stafford Baptist, Jesus truly does have all authority in heaven and on earth. There are no kingdoms that rival his. What does he do with his power? All authority. When you think about it, who is more powerful? The one who conquers the world against their will with tanks and bombs? Or the one who conquers the world by changing their will? By grace and new life? Like the tree for the birds or bread for the hungry, these parables teach that that there's provision for all who are in Christ's kingdom. You remember that he taught his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In all these things, clothing, food will be added to you. All this isn't to say that his kingdom will be universal in this age. He also taught his disciples that they will be persecuted and hated for his name's sake. His kingdom, he says, suffers violence from those who oppose to it. But his kingdom grows, and often in ways that we cannot see. You might remember last week in Isaiah 9, I quoted Luke 17.20 to you. It fits here too. These verses teach what Jesus explains by parable here in Matthew 13. So I'll read all of verse 20 and 21 of Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Like the spreading of leaven in the midst of dough, the kingdom comes in ways that we can't observe in normal ways. Well, brothers and sisters, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? I think, first of all, Understanding the kingdom of heaven grows this way should lead to confidence that God is work in us even when we can't see it. If you are a part of Christ's kingdom, delivered from the domain of sin and death, submitted to the reign of Jesus, then his kingdom is advancing in you personally. God may be doing one million things in your life and you are aware of only three or four of them. As it is, you may only notice the difference in the tree after weeks and months of growth. God's kingdom comes in our lives as we are more and more submitted to Him, more and more fashioned into His image and reflecting of His likeness. He is at work in you, brother, sister, to complete what He began, bringing it to completion, it says, at the day of Christ Jesus. Well, not only should it lead to confidence of his work in us, it should lead to confidence in his work in the church, in in our body, even when we can't see it. We shouldn't despise little things, little churches, little people. There are no little people in Christ's kingdom. Or maybe more accurately, little people doesn't mean little significance. Do you ever think, I'm such a, a small person with limited gifts, limited energy, Limited knowledge, and and what I do isn't really important. Well, in fact, this this is God's modus operandi. He uses stammering Moses. He uses the youngest, shortest son of Jesse to accomplish his impossible, unstoppable purposes. God is pleased to use limited people to accomplish his unstoppable goals. God uses what is low, what is 
despised, what is weak, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So, church member, put your hand to the plow. Get to the work of the church as little as it might seem. And one day, we might find that God gave it growth, that it bore fruit that we couldn't have even imagined. The fruit of unity, of holiness, of maturity. Well, it should also lead to confidence not only in ourselves and our church, but also of God's work in the world. Even when we look around us and it seems like his kingdom is crumbling, we can know that he is at work. I think this is why it's good as a Christian to be also a student not only of the Bible, but of of church history, of his continuing providence in the world. Right? To study how he has been at work since the time of Christ. Yes, there have been hard times, but God has been faithful to his promise to build his church. I think of the story of of Adoniram Judson, a Baptist missionary to Burma. It took him six long, soul-crushing, heart-wrenching years to baptize his first convert to Christ in Burma. Or the missionary, John Patton. We've been reading snippets of his autobiography before our Wednesday night Bible studies. Despite years of constant danger and threat to his life, he endured, and spoiler alert, we haven't got to the end of the book, but in time, an entire island professes faith in Jesus Christ. Both wonderful stories of of God's kingdom coming despite opposition in the world. It should also lead us to confidence in our evangelism, the confidence that Adonaiim, that John Patton had. No, we don't have a copy of the book of life to look up who's in the kingdom, right? There is no external sign on people that we can know in advance if they will be born again by the Spirit. You'll remember Jesus taught in John 3 that you must be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. And he compared in John 3 the Spirit that gives the spiritual life to wind. Wind can't be seen. John 3.8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We cannot predict or control the wind, nor can we predict or control who is born by the Spirit. Its work is invisible, like leaven. So our job is simply to go, tell the gospel, the saving message of the kingdom to all, to sow the seed, And pray for God to give the growth. So in our lives, in our church, in our world, in our evangelism, Jesus teaches us these simple images to live in expectation of his kingdom's unstoppable expansion, even when we can't see it. If it looks small now, what will it look like in the end? Well, we can imagine what difference investing those $1,000 in 1997 on some guy in his garage would make in our life now. We'd be $2.34 million richer. But as great as that difference is, it is frankly nothing compared to the eternal consequences of this kingdom that it has on every person who ever has and ever will live. So let's look at our third point, Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds and wheat. Small beginnings, number three, have eternal consequences. Number three, have eternal consequences. We've already noticed in verse 36, he leaves the crowd, returns to the house in private. His disciples ask him, please 
explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. And again, this is part of the point of, of parables. It has exposed, we see here in these disciples, their spiritual hunger. You notice the disciples are not distinguished from the crowds by their instant and intuitive understanding of Jesus' teaching. No, but by their persistence in seeking understanding. To be born again does not mean that you have all the answers, but that you know, that you trust, and you go to the one who does, Jesus. And remember, in parables, they're not allegories. Not every element has non-symbolic meaning. But here, in explanation, Jesus tells us which do. So he says, in verse 37, He himself is the sower of the good seed. Kingdom citizens come from the king, Jesus. He explains that Satan is the enemy. The one who sows the weeds. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. But particularly important in verse 38 is that the field is the world. The field, he says in verse 38, is the world. He is not talking about the church, but all of mankind everywhere. Notice, he doesn't say that at his first coming, now that the kingdom of heaven is here, Satan is defeated and his kingdom is ended. Yes, there is a sense in which Satan, the strong man, is bound, that every son of the kingdom was once a son of the evil one, delivered from his domain. But despite Jewish hopes, these two kingdoms will continue alongside each other until the harvest. The point is that his kingdom is here, but not yet universal. Its coming is like mustard seed and leaven. The wheat and weeds will grow alongside each other until the end. Theologians call this reality of his kingdom the already and not yet. Believers actively take part in the kingdom now, today, really, already. But the kingdom will not reach its, its full expression, a universal reign of Christ over all people until the end, not yet. I think that it's kind of like decorating for Christmas. You know, our, our daughter was confused. If we have a tree, decorations, isn't it Christmas and therefore time to open presents? Well, yes, it's Christmas season, but not Christmas day. Already, but not yet. The kingdom is here, but it's not Christmas day. Well, when is it? The kingdom will be fully consummated, made perfect. When will all rebels to Jesus' rule be removed? His reign universal and eternal. What does he say? Verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. At the end of time, at final judgment, Jesus will finally separate the wheat from the weeds. And not until then. History will one day end. We are not simply waiting for the heat death of the universe. God has appointed a day unknown to us when he will end all history and call all people to judgment. And on that day, verse 40, the weeds are gathered and burned, so also will it be at the end of the age. At judgment, he will send out the harvesters, his, his angels, to gather the sons of the evil one. He calls them here all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. We read in, in Revelation 20 that they will be judged by what they had done. The inescapable truth of the Bible is that sin deserves judgment. 
And though that judgment has been delayed, it will come at the end. All peoples will be gathered before God's throne of judgment, and He will separate them as the farmer separates the weeds from the wheat. And with some of the most sober words from the mouth of our gentle and lowly Savior, Jesus says that the sons of the evil one will be thrown, in verse 32, into a fiery fiery furnace, where in that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. There be, might be no more grave words about the fate of people to go to a place described as a fiery furnace. And that's just metaphor. Revelation 14.11 says that the, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. Makes me feel like I have the wind knocked out of me just reading that. Eternal torment. No rest. Brothers and sisters, when we look hell in the face, we can only make sense of it if we are utterly convinced that God is holy and good. If, if God wasn't holy, if He was capable of sin, we would naturally assume that the punishment of hell was unjust. But God is perfectly holy. He is incapable of ever doing evil. He is so pure that he cannot abide evil in the slightest. So the punishment of hell is the just punishment for sin. And we measure Christ's goodness by how strongly he opposes evil. The sentence of hell tells us just how good he is. There is none better Do you really want to understand God's holiness and goodness? Well, the doctrine of hell shows us in vivid detail. Sin is not just some mistake or or weakness or moral failing. Our sin, church, is rebellion against God and it is evil. Evil committed against the infinite holiness and goodness of God deserves eternal Condemnation. Torment that goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. And just like we once were, millions, billions of people are hurtling toward the eternal fate of damnation and torment because of the evil of their sin. Lord, help our hearts, help my heart this morning feel the weight of this, to feel the finality and horror of eternal judgment apart from Christ, to know that we can do everything in our power to rescue people from this fate. Charles Spurgeon expresses how our hearts should feel toward those still in the rebellion of sin and hurtling toward this fate. He wrote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. 
I have to say, if you're here today and not following Christ as king, please hear Jesus' warning. God's justice is good and it is coming. The delay is not a sign of its absence, but of his mercy, wishing that all would reach repentance. Because the truth is, hell is not the greatest display of God's holiness and justice, as as great as it is. No, the greatest display is at the cross, in his provision for escape from hell. At the cross, we see God's holiness, how strongly he felt about sin, that he could not let it go unpunished. Certainly, if there was another way to rescue sinners from hell, he would have done it and not give up the son that he loved. But since God's holiness demands it, on the cross, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. He suffered in three hours for the sins of all, of the billions of those who would trust in Him. And He suffered as the only one innocent. And we see His goodness and justice too, that if by faith and repentance we turn to Jesus as King, justice has been paid. It would now be unjust for Christ to suffer for your sins and for you to suffer to pay the penalties for those sins as well. No, the the penalty has been paid in full. So justice now means complete and irrevocable forgiveness for you. In Christ, you will never face condemnation for your sins. So because of Christ's death, we can become righteous. He takes our sins and we receive His righteousness as a gift. And on the last day, when at the judgment throne of God, He will step in on our behalf. Yes, what we have done is evil, that we were born as sinners, but He has satisfied God's demands for us, rescued us from hell. Our names written in Christ's blood in the book of life. So now we can be welcomed into His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to shine like the sun, Jesus says in verse 43. We will radiate perfection When the perfection of his kingdom comes. We will shine with a light of perfect purity. Finally in perfect submission to our king. In his eternal kingdom. The kingdom might look small now. But it leads to eternal consequences. It will be absolutely clear. On that day. What investment was right. So the point of these parables, brothers and sisters, is to show that though it might not look like much now, His kingdom one day will be eternal. That final and universal judgment is coming. The rival kingdoms will not endure. Satan with death will be cast into the fire. So divest of them now, even if they look promising. Yes, for now His kingdom will suffer violence and opposition from the kingdom of Satan. As with the weeds and wheat, these two will exist alongside each other until the time of harvest, when all will be brought to light. So, Stafford Baptist visitors, the future of the spiritual stock market is certain. The only, the only investment that will last is to turn to Jesus as King, to receive His mercy. And the greatest return possible. Eternity 
in perfection, fellowship with your creator and redeemer, and the great treasure you were created for, God himself. In a moment, we will sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, a prayer in song for Jesus to return. And as we will sing to reign now as our Prince of Peace. Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are sobered by the goodness and the holiness that we see in the coming judgment. Lord, we marvel that you have rescued us from this fate that we deserving of eternal condemnation and that justly that you willingly took on our sin in Jesus Christ, that you suffered the punishment that our sins deserve, that we might be welcomed into the fellowship of our triune God forever and ever in your eternal kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see your kingdom at work in the midst of us, even as it is silent, even as it is opposed by the kingdoms of this world. Lord, I pray that you would give us the confidence to see that you are at work in our lives, in our church, in the world. Lord, that we would be those who go out and sow the seed, that you would give the growth to your kingdom. For your glory, we pray. Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.